It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to a very happy edition of Rico Bronia. Evan Roberts, I'm on vacation, but not really. It's more like a staycation. It's more like I'm not doing a show for a week with Craig kind of thing. But I was at every single one of these Met Dodger games. I give major props to my soon-to-be six-year-old Jet. He attended all three games of this three-game series. So that was a real learning experience in going to a baseball series and going to baseball games. But didn't we have fun? Don't we feel good the Mets win two out of three against the L.A. Dodgers? Hoff, don't you feel good that we took the best team in baseball and beat two, beat them two out of three? I mean, I never felt happier in my life. Really? Crazy. Well, I, 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 listen, I got to be honest, Ev. The, I'm on a high right now for the past couple of days, and I wasn't even at the stadium. Wow. You didn't even have to be. I totally get that. You know, watching the game on TV, feeling the electricity was in that building, and it was. It was incredible. But I've got bad news. I've got bad news for you, Hoff. I got bad news for everybody listening who's on that same high. The Met players will tell you right after they won this series that none of it means a damn thing. <laughs> it was great messaging, whether it was Chris Bassett or it was Francisco Lindor or it was Buck Showalter. They all basically told you, look, we're glad we won the series. We feel great about it. But ultimately, none of this means crap, which is essentially what Chris Bassett specifically said after the game. And, and the truth is, they're right. And I remember saying this many times throughout this regular season that as much as you want to beat the L.A. Dodgers, specifically the Dodgers, more so than the Braves, because the Mets and Braves are battling tooth and nail for the National League East where every game matters. But kind of like the Yankee series, and it really is similar to the Yankee series, as much as you want to beat the New York Yankees, as good as it feels to beat the New York Yankees, ultimately, it doesn't mean anything. Like, think about this. Earlier this season, the New York Mets played the San Diego Padres twice, a series in San Diego, a series in Queens. And both times, the Mets lost two out of three. Does that freaking mean anything you know, when the Mets or if the Mets play the San Diego Padres somewhere down the road in the postseason, will any of that matter? And I always cite what happened in 2015 with the Chicago Cubs, and maybe our older listeners would cite what happened in 1988 with the L.A. Dodgers. So I want to make this clear. This was a great week, and we will get into everything that happened over these three games, including a few other things, such as the fact that Buck Showalter hates Mark Vientos, hates him. We'll get to that coming up. The injury to Brett Beatty, the Mets roster construction, but more so than not, this scintillating three-game series win over the L.A. Dodgers. But it doesn't mean anything. The only thing it meant was the standings. What it meant was the Mets are in a dogfight with the Atlanta Braves. The Braves did to the Rockies. I wouldn't say what we expected because I think we expected them to just annihilate the Rockies and win all three games. The Rockies actually won a game. But the Mets are in a dogfight with the Atlanta Braves, and so every game from that standpoint matters. But so do the games against the Washington Nationals coming up this weekend. So do the games against the Pittsburgh Pirates. But does it feel good to beat the Dodgers? Absolutely. Was the world on the line Thursday afternoon as they played the Dodgers? No. No. Because much like the Astros beating the Mets four straight times, if they play in the World Series, who gives a crap? Doesn't matter. The Mets play the Dodgers in the NLCS. You think it matters that the Mets won the season series 4-3? to three? No. With that said, what a freaking series. And I got to hand it to a couple of people. Number one, I got to hand it to Francisco Lindor. Francisco Lindor's majestic RBI double in the sixth inning was such a, oh, it was like letting out a fart when you were holding in gas you know, for hours and hours and hours. That's what it felt like because in the final game of this series against the Dodgers, you're facing Clayton Kershaw, and you know Clayton coming off the injured list is not going to pitch deep into this game. We all kind of understand that. But when the Mets have the bases effing loaded with one out in the first inning, you got a chance to knock them around. You got a chance to beat them up a little bit. And they're very lucky to even get the run they got when Mark Canna drew the walk. But as Jeff McNeil popped up the third base, 
I said this to both Jet and Spence. I took both of my sons to the finale of this series because I want to teach them about baseball. And I looked at them and said, they ain't getting anything else against Kershaw. And Jet says, why? And I said, I'll tell you why. Because this is what aces do. This is what Max Scherzer can do. This is what Jacob deGrom can do. You best get to them early. And if you don't get to them early, you're never getting to them at all. Now, luckily, my cousin Dave Dave Roberts, rightfully so, not criticizing him here, had a strict pitch count on Clayton Kershaw. He threw 74 freaking pitches before we were given the gift from the baseball gods to face Chris Martin of Coldplay. So, see, I, I, I can give you a reference. I know that. Wait, Hoff, is, was Chris Martin in Coldplay? Was he, that yes, he's the lead singer of Coldplay, married Gwyneth Paltrow for a little bit. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Look at you know Damn. pop culture. How about that? That's right. Sometimes I pull that out of my ass. <laughs> but luckily, we were able to get Clayton Kershaw out of this game because if Clayton Kershaw didn't have a strict pitch count, this game would have looked different. I mean, let's face it. They, they weren't hitting him. They were just not figuring out Kershaw after that first inning. But what was great, like I mentioned, after Marte beats out that infield hit in the sixth inning against the lead singer of Coldplay, Francisco Lindor behind in the count. Remember, a few days ago, uh-oh, Lindor's slumping again. Uh-oh, Lindor's old for his last 19. Uh-oh, Lindor's not living up to his contract. He had a good series. Had a bunch of hits in this series. And that RBI double, that majestic shot to right field, was a thing of beauty. And then him stealing third base was a thing of beauty. That was a very, very sexy thing that he did right there. You had to love it. You had to love it. And I think in that inning, when Ruff was coming up, and maybe my memory is wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure I was right about this. When Ruff was coming up, Buck showed Daniel Vogelback off the bench to pinch hit. Okay, Vogelback is there ready to pinch hit against the right-hander Chris Martin with what at the time was, I think, a runner on second and nobody out. Because at that point, Pete Alonso was up. Lindor had not yet taken off for third base. He didn't steal that base until the first pitch to Darren Ruff, who ultimately hit. And I thought this was really, really interesting managing by Buck. He knows Dave Roberts has a lefty in the bullpen. I think it was Vessia who was warming up at the time. If he pinch hits for Darren Ruff, who's done nothing, let's face it, against lefties, against righties, he has been in a massive slump after his first couple of days that he had as a New York Met. If he pulls the trigger and goes to Vogelback, Roberts is going to the lefty. And now you got Vogelback in a lefty-lefty matchup. Would you rather have Vogelback against the lefty, or would you rather have Ruff against the righty? And it's that, by the way, there's no easy answer to that, because as bad as Darren Ruff has been ultimately... Vogelback has not exactly lit on fire either. We know he can't move, and we also know he can't hit lefties. So that was interesting. I like that Buck sent Vogelback out as a pinch hitter, and then as Alonzo struck out, and he had a miserable series, we'll get to that in a bit, he calls him back and says, all right, Darren, get up there. And to Ruff's credit, in an at-bat that I thought was ultimately going to end in a just a meaningless strikeout or a pop-up to third, Ruff hit a ball deep enough, actually went to the warning track. I thought it had a chance to get out to drive in what was the lead run, what turned out to be the winning run in this game. So credit to Ruff, who overall sucks, but nevertheless, in a big moment, in a big at-bat, was able to put the bat on the ball and drive in what was ultimately the game-winning run. Obviously, the Mets got a little lucky in the eighth inning, that little bloop double by Brandon Nimmo, and we saw Buck do something that I love. I I can't tell you how much I love this. I've said it a million times. I'll say it again. When he uses his closer in the eighth inning, he has now made this normal. And here's what's so great about this. And I've always brought up why Buck should do this, but I'm not going to mention that again. You all have heard me say that. What I love about it is Edwin Diaz's ability to, to do it. Now, this wasn't Diaz's best performance. I think we all know that. He was very lucky to get through the eighth inning. First of all, he issues a leadoff walk. He hits Will Smith when he's ahead of him one and two. Max Muncy hits one of the warning track. Justin Turner hits one of the warning track. I mean, Edwin Diaz was probably as bad as ever in this game on Thursday. Now, he also threw the fastest pitch of his career and struck out Gavin Lux, and I give Edwin Diaz major props for that. 
But before that, two warning track fly balls to the deepest part of the ballpark, a walk and a hit batsman. So it wasn't his best performance, but we've seen Diaz come in in the eighth inning and pitch great. We've seen it. And so for a while, whenever I would bring this up on the radio years ago, not necessarily with Edwin, but just in general, about using your better reliever in the seventh or eighth inning, the biggest retort I'd get from people is, well, they're closers. Their mentality is to pitch the ninth inning. They can only pitch the ninth inning. Always heard that. Edwin Diaz has reminded you that, no, just give me the freaking baseball. I can pitch whenever you put me in. I'm telling you right now, I thought about using him in the seventh inning. And I didn't think that would have been crazy. Because remember, he goes to Trevor May in the seventh inning. He walks Trace Thompson. You know Trace Thompson's brother, by the way? A little trivia question. Do you know who Trace Thompson is related to, Pete? I believe uh, it's Clay Thompson on the Warriors. Look at you. Look at I'm you. On it. I'm on it. Let's go. I like it. I like it. We didn't even <laughs> set that up. I would never do that. Yeah, Trace's brother is Clay Thompson. Whatever. So May walks Trace Thompson and then comes very close to walking Chris Taylor, the 8-9 hitter. I got the guy two rows behind me screaming, rightfully so, you're going to walk the 8-9 hitter? Yeah, with Mookie Betts coming up. And as this is happening, I'm thinking to myself, I'd warm up Diaz right now. Why wouldn't I? I was just given a 3-2 to lead. I have a lead. Mookie Betts may come up with 2 on nobody out. Obviously, you can't go to Diaz for bats because you have the three-batter minimum. But for Turner and Freeman and Will Smith, why not? Now, Buck didn't do that. Buck never had Edwin Diaz warming up in the seventh inning. But I'm saying it out loud to you. Why the hell not? I mean, I love that Buck has broken the rule of I can't use my closer in the eighth inning and then not use him in the ninth inning. He's already broken that. He does that. He does it routinely to the point where it's not even a story anymore. It shouldn't be because he's done it a bunch of times. Why not the seventh inning? Why the hell not? Sometimes the biggest outs of the game may be in the seventh inning. And if he had walked Taylor and there were 2-1, nobody out with Betts coming up. And let's say Betts grounds out the shortstop and they don't turn to double play. And there's second and third, one out with Trey Turner coming up, up by a run. Why would you not go to Edwin Diaz? Why not? Am I crazy off? No, you're not. I, 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 I've been talking about that for a long time now, that the biggest outs may not be in the eighth, ninth inning, so that makes total sense. What's, what's more interesting to me is we look at Edwin Diaz right now, who last couple years had difficulty closing games, and now is as flexible I think that's the most impressive thing of it all. That just how much of a, how dominant of a season he's having. It's just amazing. Yeah, and I think he's showing that the mentality that you need to be a big time reliever, he has. And I think a part of why relievers may have been put themselves in a spot where I'm a ninth inning guy, only pitch in the ninth inning. I'm not used to not pitching in the ninth inning. It needs to be a save situation. It can't be a tie game is because managers continue to use them in the exact same situation over and over and over and over again. If you use guys in various ways, like Buck has with this bullpen, you can't help but get used to it. I mean, another guy who's been brilliant is Adam Adovino. I mean, I got to hand it to him. As much as we all may not trust him, ultimately in a big spot, and I think a part of why there's a lack of trust for Adam Adovino is that because we've seen him be ineffective, and I just don't mean with the Yankees, I mean last year. I remember when the Mets made the decision to sign him, uh, I looked at his numbers and compared them to Jairus Familia. And I wasn't saying anything out of school. I was giving you the facts. Jairus Familia had a better year last year than Adam Adovino. But Adam Adovino reminds you that when you're a reliever in Major League Baseball, none of that crap matters. I mean, look at Aaron Loop last year. So it's impossible to predict sometimes who and which reliever is going to have a monster year and which one's going to just completely collapse. Credit to you, Josh Hader's completely collapsed. And it happened in the middle of the freaking season. Knew it. Nailed you it. Did, you did know it. No, not for nothing, but it really, I, I hate to use this term, but the bull, bullpen, the relief pitcher is the most bipolar position in sports. It really 100%, is. 100%. And that's why it's so tough to predict. But I think... The negativity, which Adam Adovino has not earned. Adovino's been great, specifically since Memorial Day against the Phillies. I think the negativity we may have for Adovino is his resume. The idea of, yeah, he's been great. Yeah, the eye test has been fantastic for him in 2022, but I watched him in 2021, or I watched him in 2019, and I know the bad Adam Adovino is going to show up. But how about the fact 
that Adam Adovino, when he's been asked, whether it was against the Rockies last week, whether it was against the Dodgers on Thursday, when he's been given the save job because Diaz pitched the eighth inning, look how he's responded. I mean, he was unbelievable in the finale of this series. It's still only a two-run game. You get a guy on base, you got Mookie Betts as the tying run. You get a guy on base, you've got Trey Turner as the tying run. You get multiple guys on base, you got Freddie Freeman coming up. You look at what he did in the second game of this series, pitching a 1-2-3 inning against not the same hitters, but 8-9-1 and one of the batting order. And you know what's crazy about the second game of this series without Avino? And this it's kind of a rip job of the Met bullpen, or at least the way it's built, but it's just the reality. Buck Showalter goes to Adam Adovino in the eighth inning to face Joey Gallo, Cody Bellinger, and Mookie Betts. Now think about this. Joey Gallo, not going to give you a whole soliloquy about Joey Gallo, but Joey Gallo and Cody Bellinger are left-hand hitters. Even this season, in a year in which Adam Adovino has been great, his numbers against lefties are bad. They just are. They're dreadful. This season, the year in which he's been mostly great. But the Met bullpen is structured in such a weird way, and by weird I mean bad way, that Buck Showalter's best option against Gallo and Bellinger was to use a righty who gets his ass kicked by lefties. So, I'm sorry I turned this into a negative, but hey, the only lefty they have in their bullpen is Joely Rodriguez. And, well, we'll get to the opener of this series. He sucks. So, look... The bullpen did its job. You know, ultimately, you look at game two of this series, Jake gives you seven innings. Adovino and Edwin Diaz did their job. You look at the finale of this series, Trevor May, Edwin Diaz, Adam Adovino did their job. In the first game of this series, Joely didn't do his job, but the Mets didn't hit, which is the main reason they lost. So as much as we're all fearful of this bullpen, and I remain fearful of this bullpen, we need to be fair. They did their job against the best offense in Major League Baseball in the final two games of a three-game series against them. And they are the best offense in baseball. The numbers are the numbers. And the eye test is the eye test. When you have to face Mookie Betts and Trey Turner and Freddie Freeman and Justin Turner is like God against the Mets, they never get Justin Turner out. You look at Justin Turner's numbers and you see 279 home run, like a solid year. If he faced the Mets all the time, he did 415. Remember that DS in 2015? He was the one Dodger the Mets could just never, ever get out. Never get out. But, boy, credit to the bullpen. As much as it scares us, the bullpen did its freaking job. The only other thing from the finale of this series is that I thought Jeff McNeil was dead in the first inning. When he made that diving attempt on that base hit and he didn't get up right away, I'm thinking, oh, God, this is not an injury the Mets could ever deal with. And oh, by the way, it still wouldn't have led to Vientos being brought up because as I'll discuss later in this podcast, Buck Showalter hates Mark Vientos. We will get to that, I promise you. Now, as far as the first two games of this series is concerned, and it was a continuation of what happened against the Rockies, they're just not hitting. Sometimes it's simple and sometimes it's annoying, but they are not Hitting. You look at the way they scored in the opener of this series. They scored their first run on that weird error. Stalling Marte lays down a bunt. The throw by Andrew Haney hits the runner. Marte ends up on third. Nimmo scores a run. The Mets are gifted a run. Obviously, the third inning was incredibly frustrating. That was the inning where Taiwan Walker hit Joey Gallo with the bases loaded. Oh, my God. Uh, that one killed all of us. And then, of course, Gavin Lux comes through with the two-run single. But the offense in that game did nothing. Marte hits a home run. Canna hits a home run. And then with all the other scoring opportunities they had, they failed. So even though I think the big talk after that game was ripping the bullpen, and I understand why, because Joely Rodriguez is not that good. Because when Joely Rodriguez comes in to face a lefty in Freeman, a lefty in Muncie, a lefty in Gallo, a lefty in Lux, and can't get the job done, then you say to yourself, why are you here? You know, why are you on the roster? I know that you want a lefty in your bullpen, but if you suck, why are you there? But that's not why the Mets lost. I think we all need to acknowledge that. You know, in fact, the Mets 
got out of that jam in the seventh inning. Tommy Hunter actually did a pretty good job. You know, Michael Givens actually did a pretty good job. They couldn't hit. And I think what was frustrating about their lack of hitting in the opener of this series is that it kind of continued from what happened against the Rockies and what happened against the New York Yankees. What was also really frustrating about not hitting in the opener of this series, look who shut us down. They got shut down. I don't say Andrew Haney shut him down because the Mets got three runs against them, but they could have gotten more against Andrew Haney. They get shut down by Heath Hembry? Are you serious? They get shut down by Alex Vesia and Evan Phillips? Okay, they're good. But then ultimately, you get shut down by Jake Reed, the former Met? Now, a couple of first guesses on Buck, because I thought Buck had a miserable game in the opener of this series. And I want to acknowledge that, despite the fact the Mets ended up winning this series. There are moments where you've got to pinch hit for your pitcher slash catcher. Because the Met catchers are basically pitchers in the old National League. And I remember talking to you about this, Pete, a few weeks ago. That the Mets need more depth on their bench. Because since they are a platoon team, they're going to have to pinch hit for McCann or Nito. Maybe even early in a game. And then once that catcher comes in, you may need to pinch hit for them again. That's why, in a perfect world, Francisco Alvarez being on this roster made sense. Obviously, Alvarez is banged up right now. It appears like the news is actually pretty good and that he may not need surgery. But their offense from catcher is so bad that, yeah, sometimes you have to pinch it early in a game. And when it's the sixth inning and you're trailing three to two and you've got two on and two out in the sixth inning and James McCann, who struck out his first two at-bats and looked miserable doing it, and you have a bench that features Daniel Vogelback, Tyler Naquin. We thought Brett Beatty, but I guess at that point he wasn't available because he was hurt. We didn't know that at the time. Why not use your big weapon there? Now, he ended up pinch hitting for McCann in the ninth inning. That's when Vogelback rounded into the double play. But if you use Vogelback in the sixth inning, and let's say Vogelback comes through with a big hit, you may not need him to pinch hit in the ninth inning of this game. So, and I heard Buck's reasoning after the game. I disagree with him. And I think it also hurts that, look, the expansion of rosters only gets you to 28. We don't live in a world anymore in which you could have 37 guys on your roster because then things would be a little bit easier. You could bring up a third catcher, obviously Michael Perez who looked pretty good. And then, yeah, you can be really aggressive in pinch hitting for these lousy hitting catchers. But I think at this moment, when you only are carrying two catchers, you've got to be aggressive and smart about when you go for it. And I really thought in the sixth inning of that game, trailing by a score of three to two, that was the moment to do it. Buck didn't do it. Maybe he was fearful that they would go to a lefty if he went to Vogelbach, so it would lead to kind of a bad matchup. And at that point, the only righty on your bench is Tomas Nito. You're not necessarily going to do that. But that one frustrated me because I think in the sixth inning of that game, it was at least a moment. It was at least an opportunity. I have a question for you. Because I know we talk about like McCann Nito being in dead spots. And and it it's true. They really totally are, are are dead. But how early is too early? Like say if it's like the, the the second inning and you got like bases loaded, two outs, and McCann's up. Are you thinking about already doing a pinch hitter because you know how the likelihood of him getting a hit in that spot is not likely? I mean, that is that that's gotta start to be a consideration, no? Yeah. No, it gets tricky. I agree with you. It gets really tricky because everything I just said about the sixth inning, you could argue in the second inning, you know, especially if you're trailing in the game. Like, let's say you're down three nothing early. You can look at that at bat in the second inning and say, hey, that could be the most important at bat of the game. I, I understand a manager not pulling the trigger that early. To me, the sixth inning is really where it starts to begin because now you're looking at, you know, we're getting down to your final nine or 10 or 11 outs. In this case, you're down to your final 10 outs. I I would just, I would structure this roster differently in terms of this. Number one, Mark Vientos would be up here. Even if he isn't replacing Darren Ruff as the right-handed inning DH, he gives you another right-handed option off the bench. So you can be aggressive in pinch hitting. But the thing I would do, and I've mentioned this before, is that the Mets are built in a way in which they pitch really well. 
And a lot of their starting pitchers go deep into games. And Buck has a circle of trust of relievers that he uses, which means you don't need eight or nine relievers out of your bullpen. You don't. Like, they called up Adonis Medina, and I understand why. Why not another arm? But I think when you've got 28 roster spots now because of roster expansion, I'd lean towards two extra position players off my bench. Not necessarily needing a pitcher who I may not use. I mean, think about it. We've seen guys in this bullpen go a week without pitching. We've seen Trevor Williams go a long time without pitching. Now they're thinking about using a six-man rotation, which they're at least going to use this turn, excuse me, this turnaround. But when you use a six-man rotation, you could push Chris Bassett a little bit more. You could push Max Scherzer a little bit more. So if I had a bench off that was structured differently, like I had more guys coming off my bench and a third catcher, then I think you can be more aggressive in pinch hitting early in a game. It's tougher to do that when you don't have as deep of a bench. No, and now you, you're wasting a spot. And I hate to say waste because he did steal a base today, but the Terrence Gore on the team now, it's like you have a guy who you literally, he's not going to hit the ball, but he can steal a base. Well, I'll but, tell you, that that's valuable though, man. I, I really, I think it, like to have one guy who's literally got one job and that's get on base and run, and he did it. Now, ultimately, it didn't matter because the Mets were, una- were unable to drive him in. But again, if you look at the, your roster and say, I can live with one less arm out of my bullpen, and I've got five or six guys, maybe even seven coming off my bench, then you can live with it. I, the, the Mets are, I know we're in the American League world now where there's a DH, and I'm, I'm certainly getting used to that. But the Mets have a lineup that features enough guys who should get pinch hit for. There are a lot of lineups in Major League Baseball where nobody would ever be pinch hit for. It's like, well, what the hell do I need a bench for? I don't need a bench. I'm never going to pinch hit. There were a lot of Yankee teams back in the day that were like that. This Met team is not like that. You've got a DH platoon. You've got a third baseman that still can't hit. And you've got catchers that can't hit. So you've got three spots in your lineup. I know third base, they don't ever really pinch hit. But you definitely have two spots in your lineup in which you're going to use guys off your bench. So is it ever too early to pinch hit? I think the... The way the game is going will also dictate that. I think that'll play a big part, big part of it. Uh, as far as the second game of this series is concerned, this is what I love about Jacob DeGrom. What I love about Jacob DeGrom is when you look at that game he pitched on Wednesday, he threw more curveballs than you'll ever see. He threw more changeups than you'll ever see. And he got hit hard. Yeah, he really did. He got hit hard. I think as someone who is spoiled watching Jacob DeGrom, your eye test would tell you that Jacob DeGrom was average on Wednesday night. That's fair to say. I think the eye test would tell you that. And yet, here's Jacob DeGrom's final line on Wednesday night against the Dodgers, the best offense in major effing league baseball. Seven innings, three hits, one run, nine strikeouts, one walk. That is a great pitching line. There's no other way to look at it. That is a tremendous pitching line. But if you watched him, whether it was the hard contact, whether it was, oh my God, he issued a walk to Trey Turner, whether it was, obviously, Brandon Nimmo saved his ass, which we'll throw in there as well. But how about Will Smith in the sixth inning? He came very close to hitting a two-run home run. He gave up enough hard contact. He issued a walk (laughs) that... It's fair to look at Jake's performance and say, eh, you know, I've seen Jake pitch better 80% of the time. And yet seven innings, three hits, one run. And I said this to Beningo. I was on the phone with Joe uh, Thursday morning because he hates DeGrom for some reason. I, I haven't been able to figure it out, but he clearly does. And I said to him, look, I know you want to see him throw 100 pitches, as do I. I think we all do. He was done after 93 pitches. Now, sometimes... We blame managers for being too obsessed with pitch counts. We can sometimes be too obsessed with pitch counts where we can see a low pitch count and say, well, he's got to pitch longer. If you watch the Grom, first of all, Brandon Nimmo makes one of the great catches you'll ever see. Probably the signature play of this series, maybe the signature defensive play of the year, whatever. It's an amazing play. Not going to belabor it. We've all seen it. After he strikes out Gavin Lux, even though you got eight, nine and one coming up and his pitch count is low. 
Were you that, and I love Jake, were you that confident about sending him out there for the eighth inning? Because he, like I said, Hoff, he was hittable. So I wouldn't send him out there because his pitch count's low. You should send him out there if you think, hey, I've got confidence he's going to go get me three more outs. I didn't exactly have that. I thought Jacob DeGrom was done after seven innings. Well, again, the only other thing is, though, you have to look at see what the bullpen situation is. And again, you just laid it out. Adovino has really been reliable, and then Edward Diaz is amazing. So if you believe in them, then you can make that move. If you don't feel as comfortable, I'd almost prefer a spent 93-pitched DeGrom for one more inning. Yeah, look, if the choice is a spent Jacob DeGrom or Trevor May, we're all going to (laughs) say, give me a tired Jacob DeGrom. I think what's important is that it appeared DeGrom was tired when his pitch count was in the 70s. And I think by throwing 100 pitches, by throwing 95 pitches every six days, hopefully he doesn't tire out when he's in his 90s. So, now I'm not saying necessarily that it was him. I guess I jumped to the conclusion of him being tired. If you listen to DeGrom after the game and and certainly watched him, it was just bad location which you could say was because he was tired or it was just mechanics, simple mechanics, simple. I didn't execute, which was Jake's answer for why he gave up so many hard hit balls. But I think the more he pitches, the more he's going to throw in the mid nineties and get over a hundred, maybe the more he can go deep into a game. And we won't be saying to ourselves after seven and 93 pitches. All right, fine. Take him out. All right, fine, get, just move him on. But to your point about what was available, you knew Adovino was available. You knew Diaz was available. And so far, look, Diaz and Adovino have been great. It's really tough to kill these guys. I think we're all waiting for the Edwin Diaz blown save. I heard a lot of people say, and I didn't subscribe to this. I wasn't negative like this. And like I mentioned, I was in the ballpark for it, that because Timmy Trumpet performed Edwin Diaz's theme song, that somehow that meant he was going to blow the game. I have a few people. I heard Loogie say that in his show he did with Trista Crick. I, Joe said it to me. Bro, I, I had this terrible freaking feeling because Timmy Trumpet. And I'm thinking to myself, look, Edwin's going to blow a game. He came very close to blowing the finale of the series. Very, very close. But I don't think that he's going to be affected by Timmy Trumpet playing the trumpet. And if anything, the result was the opposite. Remember, he comes into a one-run game against Trey Turner, Freddie Freeman, and Will Smith, the three of the better Dodger hitters. Obviously, if Mookie's in that conversation, it's the three best Dodger hitters. And he, he barely broke a sweat. He was great. But this negativity, and I, I look, sometimes I'm negative. I admit that. But that negativity of thinking Timmy Trumpet's blowing a trumpet, that means Diaz is blowing the save? I don't get that off. Ev, listen, you know, I I wasn't there uh, yesterday, Wednesday, but watching on TV, the electricity, the Nimmo catch, everything was working in our favor. And you're right. You know what? In typical fashion, we've seen MG Chavez go and make an amazing catch, and then they don't win. Uh, You know, they don't make the the, the, the calls Beltran strikes out. But we've also seen the Baxters of the world make a crazy catch and then we get a no-hitter from Johan Santana. So we have to start thinking of those way. We have to start thinking of the positive way. And that's what it comes down to. I'm sick and tired of the negativity. Because you're right. I, I saw Joe the other day, too. I still see a little negative tone with the Mets. It's like, oh, we, what are, we're watching an amazing season right now. They, You're right. This, year, this series means nothing besides two more wins <laughs> in the column. But it was an incredible... Like, that atmosphere was ridiculous. And to even think for a second that that was going to be a blown save. I can't even believe that because I, I was, I, that's, that's can't happen anymore. <laughs> well, can't. It's look, Diaz is going to blow a save. That's, I will make that prediction. To Stop you. that. Stop. No. But that's not, that's not being <laughs> negative. It's just most Reality. human beings who are great are human. And Diaz has looked human, by the way, over the last few weeks to his credit, he hasn't blown a game. But he's been shaky. He's had some shaky performances. He's had more shaky performances recently than he had for a while. So I think ultimately he's going to blow a save. I don't think this is going to be a Brad Lidge season, even though Diaz has already blown saves. But you know what I mean? Like, I don't think it's going to continue being perfect. But I also don't think that the live musical performance was any indicator of it. If anything, the live musical performance is where sports is going. It is about entertainment. 
And I've heard a lot of owners say that. You want fans, when a game is over, to say, I had a great time, I want to come back. And for me and you, it's just win. It's as simple as that. But for a lot of fans, it's more than that. And what the WWE has done so well at WrestleMania, they always have like a live musical performances performance of one of the intro songs. So like back in the day, Triple H would come out to, you want to play the game, you got to play it. Like a live performance by, you know, whatever artist did it, I forgot. Motorhead. I apologize. Motorhead, thank you. You're welcome. So I can see that in baseball. I can see it where let's get a live performance of the walk-up music of our cleanup hitter or a live performance of, in Diaz's case, our closer coming in, you know, or here's a live performance of Simple Man as Jacob the Crop warms up. I don't think it's crazy. I, I think it's great entertainment. You're right. The electricity in that building for really all three games was outstanding. And it's to be expected. The Mets are in first place. They've been in first place most of the year. I think sometimes it takes a while for fans to say, I got to go to the ballpark. Because, you know, at times the Met attendance was a little disappointing. I mentioned that about that brave five-game series. But this week, the place was packed. Now, there were Dodger fans there. I acknowledge that. Good amount of Dodger fans there. But I think the Met fan is enthused. How can you not be? There's a team right now that, as we sit here today, is 84-48. and 48. This is the second greatest regular season we've ever seen. They're still on pace to win 103 games. My dad hates that phrase, on pace. What does it mean? The Mets have maintained their pace all season long. They've been in that 103-win pace. That's part of what's been amazing about this season. They've been incredibly consistent. They haven't had a bad month. Think about it. Look, go through the Met month-by-month record as we enter September. I happen to have it in front of me. In April... They were 15-7. and seven. That's a 682 winning percentage. In May, they were 19-10. and 10. That's a 655 winning percentage. In June, they were very average. They were 13-12. and 12. Actually, the worst month they've had by far. That's a 520 winning percentage. They were outscored by 15 runs. Weird to think about that, but that actually happened. In July, they were 17-8. and eight. That's a 680 winning percentage. And in August, they went 19 and 11. That's a 633 winning percentage. They have been the model of consistency. But yes, this place was electric. The crowd was into it. It was really, really a fun series. And, you know, an important series because every game matters when the Atlanta Braves are breathing down your neck. The other thing that I thought was really impressive is that Pete Alonso was awful in this series. And I love Pete. We did a comedy event with Pete a few days ago. I think Pete will admit it. He breaks his bat sometimes when he's frustrated, as he did again in this series against L.A. But Pete Alonso in this series against the Dodgers went 1-for-11 with a single. He was 0-for-4 with runners in scoring position. He struck out off the top of my head five or six times. He was bad. But think about that. The Mets' best, most important offensive player was dreadful in this series And the Mets won the series. And how they win the series, and this is the part that should excite us because this is what the Mets are going to need to do to win a World Series. As much as we bitch about the DH or bitch about the offensive catcher or talk about what this offense has done for two weeks, here's what makes the Mets special. And here's what they're going to need to do to win the World Freaking Championship. They played three games against the best offense in baseball and they gave up eight runs. That's it. They shut down the best offense in baseball. And they did it with their ace. They did it with their number three. And they did it with, well, not that Taiwan Walker was great, but a guy who may not make a postseason start. And their bullpen, outside of Joely Rodriguez, was mostly really good, led by Adam Adovino and Edwin Diaz. That's the formula. The formula is you got to score just enough runs you know, you can't get shut out, but you got to pitch. And they pitched. A couple of other things to get to. Brett Beatty is essentially done for the season. That was a major disappointment on two levels. Number one for him. Here's a kid that finally got the call up to the majors, hits a home run in his first major league at bat. And even though he wasn't hitting at a high level and his defense was mediocre, I was still ready to see more Brett Beatty. Now, I wasn't ready to say, oh, Escobar is back. Play him every single day. And obviously, Luis Guillerme is still not back. When Guillerme was back, we would have had a broader discussion about it. But he's not back. So 
it sucks for him, the player. I think it sucks for the Mets. Because right now the Mets are in a spot where Eduardo Escobar is your everyday third baseman. And Eduardo, until Guillerme comes back, but Eduardo Escobar has done nothing to earn being the everyday third baseman again. He hasn't. So that sucks. Darren Ruff, despite the sack fly, has done nothing, which leads to a fair question. Why not call up Mark Vientos? Why not call him up? Because A, he plays third base. Right now you're stuck with just Eduardo Escobar. And B, the right-handed part of your DH spot is not producing. And I had heard a while ago, not a while ago, like days ago, so really not that long ago, that Buck Showalter was not a fan of Mark Vientos. And I'd heard that as kind of a little hearsay. So I didn't put that much stock in it. Just, no, I guess he doesn't like him. And then I read this quote from Buck Showalter. And I'm like, holy crap, he hates Mark Vientos. So, you know, basically Billy Epler and the Mets are talking about why Devin Marrero was called up. Why not Mark Vientos? Vientos has produced so well at the minor league level. Look at all his numbers, right-handed bat. Why not? So listen to this quote. I'm reading this from, uh, I think it was Newsday. I, I forget, one of the great beat reporters, Tim Healy maybe? I don't know. Earlier Thursday, when asked about the organization's messaging to Vientos, given his strong season and the lack of a call-up, manager Buck Showalter quipped, which part of the year is he having that's good? You talking about the hitting? That's something for Billy to talk about. (laughs) First of all, I think we'd all agree Vientos is having a good year, at least from just looking at baseball reference. And Buck's quip is... Which part of the year is he having that's good? What a douche comment that is. I'm sorry. If I'm Mark Vientos and I read that, I'd say, what? Is this guy bashing me? And yeah, he was. He doesn't like his defense. He doesn't like his versatility, which Billy Epler essentially said in a nicer way. Buck Showalter didn't say it in a nice way. What part of his year is good? Like he's confused why anyone would ask, why wouldn't you call him up? Because he hits the ball. Because he's been productive offensively. That's why. So they hate him. Buck Showalter hates Mark Vientos off. There you go. But but I, I but I don't stand because like we just saw Brett Beatty. And listen, I'm not trying to take away say that Beatty was a was a terrible addition. But we saw his deficiencies too. Like you're telling me that Vientos couldn't be at least on that level. Beatty wasn't uh, this this spry defensive uh, third baseman. We're like, wow, this guy's flawless. No, he had his issues. But again, we it was for his bat. Isn't that the point? I guess it scares me about Vientos' defense because you're right. Like Beatty wasn't all that impressive, but clearly based on Bucks commenting and then the actions of the Mets because they haven't called him up, they hate him defensively but 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 here's the thing Brett Beatty was only going to play third base right like when he was called up he was just Vientos may not only play third base he could also be the right-handed DH I know they don't want to give up on Darren Ruff because they gave up so much for him but you could use another right-handed bat especially when you face a team like the Dodgers that have three left-handers out of their bullpen. So Vientos could actually serve in potentially two roles for your team while Beatty was only serving in one. Uh, And here's just to get back to this quickly, because I don't want to harp on the fact that the Mets not calling up their prospects confuses the hell out of me. Look around the majors right now. Like the Yankees got forced into uh, calling up Peraza now too. So now they have two young kids called up. Arizona called up that guy Corbin. Uh, Baltimore called up Henderson. Like everyone's getting called up, and the Mets are so hesitant. Is there something that either A, they're trying to protect so that they could trade them in the offseason, or B, are they really just not that good? Ah, man. The, the, <laughs> excuse me. They're, the, it's, they're not that good. Theory will just pan out based on are they on the team next year? Like, is Francisco Alvarez a part of the catching situation in 2022. And I lean that he is. Is Brett Beatty a part of the third base situation in 2022? And I lean that he is. Is Mark Vientos next year the right-handed DH? I lean that he is. Like So I don't believe that the answer is going to be they're not that good because I think those three guys specifically are actually going to be a really big part of the 2023 New York Mets. 
I think it's, I lean towards Buck not really wanting a lot of young guys on his roster. I lean towards Alvarez not being trusted with a veteran pitching staff. The Beatty thing was confusing. They were almost forced to do it once guys were so injured that they're like, oh, let's call him up. And maybe they just don't love Vientos' defensive game even more so than what we've seen from Beatty. It's tough to figure because the Atlanta Braves have been so aggressive in calling guys up, and those guys have made huge impacts on them. You know, Michael Grissom, Michael Grissom, I'm combining everybody, Michael Harris and Vaughn Grissom have been great. I mean, you almost wonder to yourself, where would the Braves be if they didn't make those two call-ups, specifically Harris, who they called up, I think, like early on during that big winning streak. Uh, so he was really a part of all their winning. And the Mets have taken a very, very conservative approach to it. And it's frustrating, no doubt. I think the more Darren Ruff struggles, even though he had that sack fly, because they faced a lot of lefties this week, so it was exposed. You know, you went out and you faced the Dodgers, and they're throwing three lefties against you. So obviously Darren Ruff was going to play all three games. I think that's, the more that gets exposed, the more frustrating that's going to be. And Eduardo Escobar's got a hit because right now he's the only logical option at third base on this team. You're not calling up Devin Marrero to play. So if these guys continue to not perform, I think the screams and yells coming from me, you and other Met fans about Vientos is only going to get louder. The one thing I will say is that Escobar coming back, playing third over Beatty, it's like, Oh, I have a little more trust in Escobar now. Like I originally was like I couldn't stand his defense, but it's like I'm not saying he's a gold glove, but at least I'm like okay, he'll he'll get, he'll make the basic plays. I'm not as nervous. You trust him more. He's also been better defensively. You know, I I think earlier this season, I forget the game, the the afternoon game where Alonzo hit the home run. I think it was against the Cardinals. Um, Escobar made the big miscue. I think he's been a lot better defensively at third base. the The other real positive that came from the system is that Tyler McGill is finally pitching in rehab games, and he's clearly being used out of the bullpen. That's his role now. He's not going to start. Next year he will, not in 2022. And in his first bullpen appearance in rehab, strikes out the side and pitches a 1-2-3 inning. So I think we're looking at a few more weeks with him. I think they said five or six performances from Tyler McGill. And then why not? You know, Trevor May hasn't gotten much better. Hey, Trevor May has gotten better, but he's still shaky, if we're being fair about it. Like, he's not making you feel comfortable, that's for sure. So Tyler McGill coming back is at least another option. We'll see about Drew Smith when he gets here. But here's what's great as a Met fan right now. Besides the record, besides everything, at 84 and 48, they now face bad teams consistently for a month. Like, I'm not even joking. It, it is a month straight of playing bad baseball teams. And yeah, they're not going to win every single game. There are going to be some games in which we say, oh my God, how the hell did you lose that game? But overall this season, and look, when you're 84 and 48, you beat a lot of teams. They've done a really good job of beating the teams they're supposed to beat. And they're about to play, I mean, think about this. The Washington Nationals are terrible. They're in last place. The Pittsburgh Pirates are right around last place. The Miami Marlins, of course, we'll see Alcantara. Why not? have been bad. The Chicago Cubs have been bad. The Pirates, again, have been bad. They don't play a competent baseball team until they play the Milwaukee Brewers for three games in Milwaukee. Then after that, they play the A's and the Marlins. So this is a real opportunity here, a real opportunity to just kick some ass and dominate the Nationals, the Pirates, the Marlins, the Cubs, and the Pirates. I mean, that's 3, 6, 9, 12, 16 games they're about to play before they play the Brewers. We'll stop with the Brewers because they're in a legitimate playoff race and they're a good team. What is a fair expectation from those 16 games against the Nationals, Pirates, Marlins, Cubs, Pirates? I mean, I, I, I'm trying to be fair, but like if 90% of the games they have to win? Come on. <laughs> I want to be fair. <laughs> Baseball. But but those teams suck. They have to, they have to go. I mean, there's two out of three of every series, three out of four. Sweet you have to sweep a couple. I mean, if you so, lose if you lose any games to the Pirates, I'm gonna be very upset. So let me let, let me let me do the math here. If they win two out of three against Washington, two out of three against the Pirates, that's four and two. You win two out of three against the Marlins, you're six and three. 
You win two out of three against the Cubs, you're eight and four. And then you got four games with the Pirates. Let's say you win three out of four. That gets you to 11 and five. Would you be happy with 11 and five against those teams coming up? Is that an acceptable result? It's acceptable, but I, I want like 13 and three. Okay. <laughs> You know, you know what jumped out at me, and I hope we don't have to burn these tapes in a couple of weeks if the Mets really struggle here. My the the number that jumped out at me was twelve and four, where I looked at these sixteen games and said, "Go win twelve out of sixteen games." Because look, as much as we'd love to see sixteen and zero and have an eighteen game winning streak going into those games against the Brewers, it's baseball, and, and I think ultimately you hit it best when you said just win the series. I think if you go out there and win every single series, and that would get you to 11 and, uh, 11 and 5, so it would be a game off of what I said. But if you win every series, 2 out of 3, 2 out of 3, 2 out of 3, 2 out of 3, and then 3 out of 4 against the Pirates, that gets you to 11 and 5. I think you have to be happy with that. And then the hope is the Braves, who it's weird. The Braves don't have a, a tough schedule, but they've got an eight-game West Coast trip coming up. The Granted... Those games are against the Oakland A's, who are terrible, the San Francisco Giants, who can't win anymore, and they do have three games mixed in against Seattle, who are pretty good. But I wouldn't say that's like an impossible trip. But during the course of these 16 games where the Mets play nothing but bad teams, they play Miami. Okay, bad team. They do face Alcantara on Friday, so that's good. It's about freaking time. Two games against the A's. Three, three against Seattle, three in San Francisco, and then three at home against the Phillies, who are the X factor here, because the Phillies play the Braves seven times to close this season. Mets are done with the Phillies. Mets did a great job against the Phillies. Obviously, Philadelphia has Bryce Harper back. Seven times the Phillies play the Braves. So here's the good news. And the Braves looked a little human this week. They lost two out of three to the Cardinals. They did win two out of three against Colorado. But ultimately, three and three in their last six games while the Mets went out, went three and one and two and one, they went five and two. So it was a productive period of time for us as Mets fans. You'd have to think, based on who the Mets are playing and who the Braves are playing, that the Mets are in a better spot before we finally see them on September 30th. You have to think that. It's a three game lead right now. I, logic says if the Mets take care of business, they should be in a very, very good spot going into that three-game series to open October. I would think that they have a still have at least a three-game lead overall and probably much, much more. And would you that's sign the, for that? You'd sign for that, right? Just maintain oh the my, lead going into the series, right? That's I've been thinking about that deeper, deeper, deeper. I'm like, as long as going into that series, we have three games, I'm totally fine. Yeah, basically, if, if, if the Mets have a three-game lead against Atlanta, you put yourself in a spot where you have to win a game against the Braves in Atlanta. Because if you did that and lost the other two, you win the tiebreaker and you go home to play the Nationals with a two-game lead. So you'd almost feel you'd have to lose all three games to Washington. So, yeah. Now, obviously, you lose all three to Atlanta. It's a completely different story. Now, all of a sudden, you need help to win the National League East. But, yeah, I, I'd agree with you on that. And I, I was saying that to, to my son, Jack, because I was explaining the Braves-Rockies games and why they matter and why Dad cares about it. And I'm like, we just want to eliminate days from the calendar and maintain or air to our lead. And I think that's the way to look at it when you're up by three games. Maintain and add. And I got to hand it to both of my sons. Jet went to all three games against the Dodgers. We never left early, never complained. He did a fantastic job. I did use the cheat code every once in a while, which is a tablet. Every once in a while that tablet comes out and maybe he's playing a baseball game. Maybe he's playing some farm game or whatever it is. Didn't have to use it that often, especially for that second game. The DeGrom game was had him locked in. Why not? Two hours, 17 minutes. Great game. Nimmo's amazing catch. And then I took Spence, who hasn't turned two yet, and he made nine innings as well, which I was stunned by. So I'm a proud father that (laughs) they were able to maintain their excitement and loved it. And the best thing, and a a woman overheard Jet say this, and she was like, wow, you got to be proud of this. As we're leaving the finale of this series, Thursday afternoon, Jet says, Dad, when are we coming back? And I'm like, really? We just went to three straight games. This game was three hours and 15 minutes. And he's like, yeah, when are we coming back? I'm like, all right, bro, you got it. Let's talk to Mama. Let's figure this out. <laughs> what, what, let me ask you a question, because it was an incredible series. 
what was the most electrifying moment of the series? I, there's two in particular that obviously pop out, but what was just for you? What what what, what would it be? The Nemo, the Nemo catch was ridiculous. You know, and unlike the ND play, they backed it up and they won the game. You know, to Jake's credit, he pumps in a big strikeout right after it happens. Because I think in the back of your mind, after Nimmo makes that play, the thought is, we can still lose this game. And then what are we saying about the miraculous Nimmo catch? It's, it's like how I'm bitter about the Andy Chavez catch. You know, they, they lost the game. So, <coughs> excuse me, I'd say that. And then probably Diaz's entrance. I know that's the, the obvious answers, but the truth is those are the answers. I mean, that's when this building was moving, when it was rocking, when it had that soul, when it had that electricity. You know, the Thursday afternoon game was the smallest of the three crowds, and it was also a late afternoon weekday game. So it was loud, but it didn't match the intensity of the first two games of the series. But for that day, Lindor's RBI double was huge. And I, look, we got to give Lindor credit. And I had a vision. Oh, I got to talk about this vision. (laughs) Lindor, in a lot of ways, is Carlos Beltran. Okay? Switch hitter. Came in with huge expectations. Making a ton of money. I know Lindor was a trade. Beltran was a free agent. But similar in terms of you're really battling to win over the fans. Had a really tough first year. You know, had an incident with fans, if you will, where you were mad at them. So there's a lot of similarities to me between Carlos and Francisco. And as I'm sitting there watching Lindor, this was late in the game, and he also had that great defensive play, which I don't want to forget. I thought, would I sign right now for Francisco Lindor to be in the spot Carlos Beltran was in 2006? Would I sign right now for bases loaded, two outs, down by two runs, Tied in the series, game seven, would I sign for that moment? And look, the moment, the odds lean towards we're going to lose because baseball is a game of failure. You know, even a guy who gets on base 40% of the time, that means 60% of the time they don't. Would I sign for that moment? And I don't know why I feel this way, but I believe that if Francisco Lindor is given that exact moment that Carlos Beltran was given, he's going to rip a bases-clearing double into right center field. And the reason it popped into my head is because when Carlos Beltran came up that night, my vision was a line drive to right center field. That was my vision. Like, as he was... It wasn't a grand slam. It wasn't a, you know, ball over the fence. It wasn't that. It was majestic line drive right center field. And the Lindor RBI that tied this game up was exactly what I visioned for Beltran all those years ago. They the exact hit. And I'll never get it out of my mind. And I think that's why that brought that to me. Like, would I sign for that? Now, look, I think Game 7 NLCS, I think we'd all sign for that at this moment. But I don't know why. I trust him. I think he's done a lot this year, especially in big moments where <laughs> if you give him that spot, that's the hit I vision. That line drive, right center field that clears the bases and the Mets win the National League pennant. I uh, I feel like I'm I trust him like you do because like you said, even when he was struggling, he would come up big in big spots, and that to me is the the, the we always talk about clutch hitting, clutch whatever. He has been clutch all season long, even when he struggled, and that that to me is someone that you can rely upon. And I I agree. Like it, I just you got me dreaming now too about it. I'm excited. Let's go. I I'd like to go to the World Series, and that, that happened in the World Series, Game Seven of the World Series in that situation. But regardless, I'll take it in the playoffs. I, look, I only bring up the NLCS because that's the fear. That's what we live through. You know that. That's one of those baseball moments, probably more so than than any other moment that I go back to and say everything could have been different with one swing. Like as bad as losing in 2000 was or 2015 was or pick any bad loss, there isn't necessarily the one moment like that. You know, it's, hey, they blew game one in 2000 and 2015. Absolutely. You know, giving up the fast pitch home run in 2015, the Paul O'Neill at bat. People like to bring up Timo Perez not running. So there are moments, don't get me wrong, but in that moment, I mean, it's bases loaded, you're down by two, it's your best hitter at the plate. And so I think I always 
think back to that. And, you know, hopefully we get that chance and things are different. But it was a great week. It was a great series. But like I said at the top, we should enjoy it. It was fun. It was great. It means absolutely nothing. If the Mets played the Dodgers in the National League Championship Series, none of this matters. But they got the Nationals coming up this weekend. They are appearing ready to go to six-man. We'll see the return of Carlos Carrasco over the weekend. We'll see Max Scherzer pitch on Saturday. And hopefully we'll see the Mets take care of business against the Washington Nationals. We will have a podcast right after or some point on Sunday after the series is over. Usually it's late, late at night. But we always promise you that Rico Brown, you will be sitting there in your little podcast folder that very next morning for your drive to work or whatever the hell you're doing. So enjoy your Labor Day weekend. Uh, I'll be back with Craig on Tuesday at 2 o'clock, but you hear another Rico Bronya to wrap up the Mets Nationals Series. LFGM. Thanks for listening to Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya Podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>